following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Last Sunday, I mentioned that one of the dangers that lies at the root of almost every fall and every descent into sin in the Christian life is the danger of forgetfulness, the danger of forgetfulness. Amnesia is defined as a partial, partial or total loss of memory. And I believe it's safe to say that because of the remaining influence of sin in our lives, we often suffer from temporary amnesia. We forget who we are as Christian believers. We forget where we came from. We forget who God is and what he's like. We forget what he has done. We forget what he is doing. And we forget what he's going to do in finishing the work he started. We often forget about the hope that belongs to those of us who belong to Christ. We forget what we ought to remember and we remember the things that we ought to forget because of sin. Last week in 2 Peter, we considered verses 12 through 15, where the Apostle Peter declared that the purpose for writing his letter was to stir people up, stir believers up by way of reminder. In verse 15, he made himself very clear when he wrote to the church in his day, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter knew the importance of remembrance because he knew the dangers that follow forgetfulness in the Christian life. And so he's writing to the church in his day in order to stir them up, in order to awaken them from their slumber. Listen to what he'll say in chapter 3 and verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So, in Peter's mind, both this letter and his first letter which we know as 1 Peter, are reminders to the church of what they had probably already heard by whoever had been sent originally to preach the gospel to them. He is basically saying, my first letter and my second letter are reminders to you of what you've already heard. Well, it was initially my plan to move on in 2 Peter today to the last major section of chapter 1 where Peter calls the attention of his readers to the reliability or the truthfulness or the dependability of the Christian message, verses 16 through 21. However, I decided late into preparation to bring one final message this morning 
on the importance of remembrance from verses 12 through 15. And so while your bulletin states that the title of this sermon is Eyewitnesses of His Majesty, I've entitled this message, Remember. What I'd like to do this morning is take you through the New Testament to consider those passages where there is a direct command to remember something. A direct command to remember something. If you were to compile a list just in the New Testament alone where you have an explicit call to remember something or to be reminded about something, you would end up with about eight categories of things to remember. Eight realities that we are to keep at the forefront of our minds and on the front burner of our hearts if we are to be fruit-bearing, kingdom-advancing Christians. If Peter, as an aged apostle, as an experienced Christian, preparing to depart from this world and onto a better world, is stressing for us the importance of remembrance, then we would do well to search and inquire of the scriptures in order to discover those things that we are to fight to keep in our remembrance. My hope this morning is very similar to Peter's. I hope and desire to stir up and awaken your sincere minds by way of reminder. First and foremost, we're to remember where we came from. You as a Christian are to remember where you came from. I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. Ephesians chapter 2. And let your eyes fall down at verse 11. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. We're talking about remembering where we came from. The Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesians... Therefore, remember, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. And without God in the world. I want you to note the five realities that characterized us before God saved us. Number one, we were separated. Number two, we were alienated. Number three, we were estranged. Number four, we were hopeless. And number five, we were godless. Paul says, remember that at that time, you were separated from Christ. There was no in an intimate, practical sense, real sense, right? Any union with Christ at that moment, even though God had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. But we were at that time separated from him. We were separated from his life. We were separated from the cleansing power and efficacy of his blood. We had no connection, no union at that time with Christ. Secondly, he says we were alienated alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And we were strangers. We knew nothing of the covenants of promise. We were hopeless. That means we had nothing ultimately to look forward to but destruction. 
We had no hope of glory, no hope of forgiveness, no hope of redemption, no hope of ever seeing God in a favorable manner. We were hopeless. And he says at the end, he says, we were without God in the world. We were godless. We didn't know God. As Romans 1 says, we knew of him, but we refused to honor him and give thanks to him. And therefore, we were futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were dark because of sin. We were godless. We did not have God. We were without God. Now, go a little bit to your left, to verse 1, where he reminds them of something else. He says that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Remember that. You were following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, the lusts of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Note those four words that summarize these verses. We were dead. We were disobedient. We were depraved, and we were deserving of God's wrath. That's what we were. And what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, is that you, as a Christian believer, are to remember where you came from. You remember where you came from. You weren't born a Christian. You weren't born, born again. You weren't born as a child of God. We were children of wrath following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, the enemy who works in the sons and daughters of disobedience. That's where we came from when God found us. That's what we were when God redeemed us. We were lost. We were wandering. We were like sheep without a shepherd. We had no hope. We were godless. We were separated, alienated, dead, disobedient, depraved, disinherited, deserving of God's wrath. That's what we were. Now, this should remind us, by the way, of something else Paul said to Titus. Paul wanted Titus to remind Christians in the third chapter of Titus that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various lusts and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul says, remind them of these things, Titus. Now, why is that important? Why is it important to be reminded of where we came from? Because we suffer from temporary amnesia and we don't remember where we came from. We think it's always been this good. We've always been godly. We've always been following the Lord Jesus Christ. We've always been indwelt by the Spirit of God. Think back to that day. When you went your own way, think back to that way when you thought thoughts that were harsh towards the living God, where you refused to bow the knee to give glory to the one who deserves all praise and glory and adoration because of his goodness to the children of men. Remember that day when you wanted nothing to do with his authority. You were, you were, you were ready to bow down and to fall over before every human authority, but in terms of God and his word dictating and governing your life, 
You wanted nothing to do with it. You were like the man, those people in Luke 19, where regarding Christ, they said, we do not want this man to reign over us. That was us. That was you. You were not born this way. You were born as an enemy of God. You were born hostile to God. You were born alienated from God. Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, in the context of reminding the Ephesians of what they were, he reminds them what God did. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's what God did. But he found you dead. He found you depraved. He found you deceived. He found you deserving of wrath. So remember where we came from as Christians, because that's fuel for a number of things. I'll give you four of them for the sake of our time this morning. Remembering where we came from as Christians does a number of things. Number one, it produces wholehearted praise to God. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Do you see what happens when we remember God's mercy towards us? Our life becomes a song of blessing the Lord. Number two, when we remember where we came from, it produces inner rest. Inner rest. Psalm 116 verse 7 says, Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. You see, when you remember where we were and what we've received in terms of the mercy and grace of God, that brings our souls to a sweet, sweet rest that only God can give. And number three, remembering where we came from brings about a genuine sense of humility and unworthiness. A genuine sense of humility and unworthiness. You remember in the prodigal son story, Luke chapter 15, it says that when he came to himself, when he was in that pig pen, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And now listen to this language. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. There's a sense of unworthiness. And now listen to this. Treat me as one of your hired slaves. He acknowledges that not only is he undeserving and unworthy, but he takes a step even lower He says that I'm willing to take the lowest position in the father's house, which is a hired servant. Mistheos in the Greek, it's referring to day laborers, 
This is less than a household slave. This was less than that. These individuals were typically very poor, unskilled workers. They lived off of the temporary day-to-day jobs they could come across at whatever wages they could come across. The prodigal son, realizing where he was and realizing the father's mercy, says, not only am I unworthy and undeserving to be called your son, but I'll take gladly the lowest seat, even lower than the servants in the house. You see, when we forget where we came from, we forget how undeserving we are, and we grow and develop a sense of entitlement and pride in the kingdom. We're stripped of all entitlement, though. And fourthly, when we remember where we came from, what produces in us a compassionate desire to reach the lost, a compassionate desire to reach the lost. In Psalm 51, when you have David confessing his sin with Bathsheba and calling upon Yahweh for mercy, after confessing and you, reading, you read about the cleansing and the purging and the forgiveness and the pardon and all the, the mercy of God being unleashed in, 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 in forgiveness and cleansing, he says in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. In other words, remembering where he came from, remembering the forgiving, pardoning mercy of God produces in him a desire to teach transgressors Yahweh's ways. As a delivered, forgiven, pardoned, cleansed transgressor, David's desire was to point others to the merciful God who had dealt so bountifully with him. That's why we are to remember where we came from when he found us. Secondly, remember that you are not of the world. Remember that you, Christian, are not of the world. Turn with me to John 15. John chapter 15. Beginning at verse 18, our Lord Jesus, to his disciples in that upper room discourse, says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And here's the call to remember. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So the second thing we're to remember is that we're not of this world. And when we talk about the world, we're not talking about the global aspect of the world, you know, the inhabitants of the world. We're talking about, as John talks about, the evil world system as governed by the prince of this world, the devil himself. This evil world system that is opposed to God, opposed to truth, opposed to Christ. We are not of this world any longer. And Christian, you are to remember that. You are to remember that this world is not your ultimate home. This world as it stands now under the power of sin and under the power of Satan is not our home. 
its inhabitants are not on our side. If we are faithful to Christ, we'll be identified with Christ. And if we identify with him, we can't expect better treatment from this world than he received. We just can't. We're not greater than our master. Remember that a servant is not greater than his master. And while we'd never say that with our words, that we are greater than him, we often say it with our lives and with our expectations, don't we? We often say that we are greater than our Lord and our master. We say it with our lives. We expect to be welcomed by the world. We expect to be embraced by the world. We expect the world to like us. By the way, let's just throw this out there, that churches who try to win the world by entertaining the world offer no help to the church's mission to make disciples out of the world with the gospel. We are not of the world, and if we surround our ministry and our practice as a church by trying to entertain the world and appeal to the world and appease the world and make the world appear like we're just all one people, Friends, we're not. We are a different people because of the grace of God. We have a different master. We have a different destiny. We have a different hope. We have a different home. Remember that a servant is not greater than his master. They hated him because he spoke the truth, because he loved the truth. And therefore, we should not expect to be people who declare the truth to the world, only to have the world turn around and embrace us. Listen, if the world embraces you because of the truth, that person has been called out of the world. Anytime you see the truth going out in love, in boldness, in humility, from someone in the church to someone in the world, if that person in the world begins to love that truth and yield to that truth and turn from their sins to Christ because of that truth, that's an indicator that that person has been rescued out of the world. But the world, as it stands in rebellion against God, will not embrace you. You will not be popular. God forbid that we focus our energies on being like the world. Because if we do that, we are guaranteed to meet God's holy displeasure. James chapter 4, verse 4. James writes, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever desires to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, this does not mean, as we're going to see next, that we are to try to make enemies, that we are to try to get the world against us. As you come across certain believers, you can tell that there's an itch, there's a desire to want to invite the world's wrath. They're they're, they're just ready to invite a fight. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. Jesus is calling us to be sons of our Father in heaven, walking mercifully, walking in the truth, walking in forgiveness, walking in boldness, walking in love, walking as people, men and women, who make the truth known and let God determine the results of that truth going out. So remember that you are not of the world. You are in it, but you are not of it. Thirdly, as we survey the New Testament We are to remember that the world is watching us. The world is watching you as a believer. In Titus chapter 3, 
verse 1, Paul says to Titus, remind them, here's the clear call to remember something, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. What Paul is saying to Titus is that generally speaking, Christians are to obey the laws of the land. And as we've seen and heard in recent times, there are instances where obeying the laws of the land would cause a Christian to either sin against God or their family or their bodies, which belong to Christ. But generally speaking, Christians are to be outstanding citizens in whatever nation they live in. He says a few things here. We're to be obedient to God. We're to be ready for every good work. We're to speak evil of no one. That's referring to slander. We are to not slander brothers and sisters. We are not to slander people in this world. That's a warning to some of us who are all over social media today. It's easy for Christians to see an article, think that it's true, and then repost it, but it's pure slander. That's, we're not called to do that. You don't know, I mean, we live in a day where the only thing that's certain is the word of God. But there's so much news out there, so much animosity, so much polar opposites in, in social media and in the, the political eye today that we see something that aligns with our political party. And it may not even be true, but we post it as if it's true. And that's slander. Be very careful. We're to avoid quarreling, he says. Well, this doesn't mean that we can't engage in heated discussions for the sake of the truth. It just means that we shouldn't go looking for fights. He says uh, we're to be gentle. The word there is reasonable. It's kind. It's meek. This is the opposite of being violent, by the way. 1 Timothy 3.3, when Timothy, uh, Paul is talking about the qualifications of an elder, he says that this man should not be violent but gentle, same word that he uses here. So this gentleness is the opposite of being a violent man, a man with a short fuse. Gentleness indicates and is indicative of being a patient person, a person of long suffering. And he says lastly that we as Christians, because the world is watching us, we are to show perfect courtesy, perfect respect, complete respect to all people. Respect to all people. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to respect their decisions. It doesn't mean that we have to respect their life choices, but we are to respect them as men and women made in the image of God. You can differ with someone's life choices and yet still respect them as a person. Why is it important to remember that the world is watching us? Because our lives and our testimonies make the gospel look either powerless or powerful. I say that again. Our lives and our testimonies make the gospel look either powerless or powerful. The world is watching us. Titus chapter 2, again, Paul talks about the conduct of slaves with regards to their masters. He says, so that in everything Servants may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You see, we are to adorn the gospel with our lives. We are not to make the gospel look powerless or pathetic. 
We are to make the gospel look beautiful in the way it transforms our everyday conduct within and without. Colossians 4, 5 says that we are to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. The world is watching. Peter has said in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and give glory to God on the day of visitation. So remember, Christian, that the world is watching you. The world is watching you. Your co-workers are watching you. Your family is watching you. And let's bring it home a little bit more. Christian parents, your children are watching you. Your children are watching you. Are you quick to apologize and to seek forgiveness when you mess up? Or are you hardening them? Are you encouraging hypocrisy by a lack of humility and repentance in your part, on your part? Your children are watching you. Remember that. Number four, as we survey the New Testament, Christians are to remember their persecuted brothers and sisters. Their persecuted brothers and sisters. If uh, you turn to Hebrews chapter 13 with me, I want you to focus in on verse 3. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3, the writer says to the these Hebrew Christians, remember those who are in prison. Again, he's kind of drawing up his summary. He's drawing up all his conclusions. And as a summary, he says, remember those who are in prison. He's not referring to any old prisoner out there for any old crime. He's referring to Christian believers who are in prison. He says, as though in prison with them. That's a command to Christians to remember other Christians who are in prison for the sake of the gospel, as though you were with them in prison. It's one thing to remember our suffering brothers and sisters in China or in Canada or in Ukraine or Russia or wherever it is in the world, but it's another thing to remember them as though we're with them there. Why does he say as though in prison with them? I'm convinced because there's an inseparable union between believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. As the body of Christ, we are one. You are one with Christians living in prosperity, and you are one with Christians living in persecution. They are, your, they're, they're, they are more so your brother and sister, that suffering saint, than is your blood brother or sister who is walking in rebellion against God. They are our siblings in the Lord, and we are to remember them as though we're with them in that cell, in those chains, in that dark prison. May God help us to get out of our comforts in America and to at least in prayer and in meditation, in a sense, be with them there, praying for their open doors, praying for their sustaining, praying that their faith would not fail. Paul said something similar, you remember, to Timothy, or sorry, to the Colossians. He says, I write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Remember my chains. Remember them as though you're with them there. And he says in the latter portion of verse 3 of Hebrews 13, and those who are mistreated, remember them. Again, this is persecution. 
And notice the reason. Since you also are in the body. They're in the body being mistreated. As Romans 8.35 says, in their bodies, they are experiencing tribulation. They are experiencing distress in their bodies. They are experiencing persecution in their bodies. They are experiencing famine in their bodies. They are experiencing nakedness upon their bodies and danger and sword. The writer says, remember them as though you're with them because you are one with them. This is the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, isn't it? Getting us out of ourselves to actually think of people who are suffering for the name we treat so lightly sometimes. They're suffering for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, we find ourselves tempted to be ashamed of that name in public. No, when we remember them, we are emboldened to live like them and to follow their example. So we're called to pray for them that open doors are opened unto them. That while they're there, that their guards would be converted. That their persecutors would be converted to Christ. We are to pray that the Lord Jesus' grace that was sufficient for Paul when he had that thorn in the flesh would be sufficient for them another day. We are to pray that their faith would not fail. Peter also said in chapter 5 of his first epistle, Resist the devil, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You see, the New Testament is constantly calling us to remember that we are part of a worldwide brotherhood in the children of God. We're not just Christians in Las Cruces. We're not just Christians in New Mexico. We're not just Christians in the United States. We belong to the body of Christ, which is dispersed throughout this entire world, and we are to identify with them as the people of Christ. So remember, your, bro- your brothers and sisters in persecution. Number five, remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Remember the gospel. Beginning in verse one, the apostle Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Consider who's receiving this reminder. They are the church in Corinth. Many good things about them, but many bad things about them as well divisive over their favorite teachers, boasting in their spiritual gifts, tolerating heinous immorality within the walls of the church. And he says, I remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Verse 3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive. That's his way of saying, go ask, go do the investigating. They're still alive. Some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Now, according to this text, why do we need to remember the gospel? Two reasons. Verses 1 and 2. 
We need to remember the gospel because it enables us to stand in which you stand. And we need to remember the gospel because it's our means of being saved by which you are being saved. It's our present deliverance. It's our present rescue. It is our present salvation. You see, it's not our salvation isn't just a past reality. It's an ongoing present reality. We were saved. We will be saved. But as Paul says here, it's the reality of we being saved right now by which we are being saved. The good news of Jesus Christ is the means by which you and I currently are being saved from the power of sin, the influence of sin, the deceitfulness of sin. That's why we're to remember the gospel. The good news, historically accurate. That's the good news. This is the foundation for everything in the Christian life. Our standing with God even now, this moment, depends on the gospel. It's not dependent upon your performance. It's not dependent upon your behavior or your conduct. Our standing before a holy, holy, holy God this morning is 100% dependent upon God's accomplishment in the gospel. In Romans 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe he's talking about objective peace there. There's no war. There's no conflict. There's no battle between the sinner, repentant, the believer, and and, and God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Why? Because of the gospel, because of what he has done in the work of Christ. He secured for us peace and he secured for us a standing with God that is entirely in grace. It would be terrifying if he says, if he said, we have obtained access by works into this works-based salvation in which we stand But he says, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You're standing in grace today. You're standing with God's sword put back into its sheath because of the gospel. The sword of justice is put back into its sheath and the hands of mercy are extended towards you, believer, child of God. And the Father invites you in through the work of of Christ in the gospel. Ephesians 2.18 says, for through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We're constantly called again and again and again to remember the gospel. Again, pointing to the letter to the Hebrews in chapter two, after describing the glories of Christ in that first chapter, after talking about how he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature, and how he created the universe and maintains the universe by the word of his power, and after he made purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and after God calls all angels to worship him, it's a glorious chapter, Hebrews chapter 1. And all of that, after all of that, 
Chapter 2, verse 1, begins with these very sobering words. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Lest we drift away from it. We must remember the gospel, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels, Old Testament, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We're to remember the gospel. We're to remember what we've heard. We're not to look for a new revelation. We're not to look for new gospel truth. We're to look to the old, old message, the old, old story, and delight ourselves there in fat and rich food because that's what it is. 2 Timothy 2.8 says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. We're to remember him. We're to remember his name. Psalm 119 verse 55 says, I remember your name in the night, O Lord. We are to remember the name of our God. The only reason we know that name is because of the gospel. And so let us remember the name of Christ. Let us remember the work of Christ. Let's remember the gospel of Christ. By the way, remembering the gospel is the key to reviving a dying church. Remembering the old, old truth of the gospel is the key to reviving and reforming a dying church. Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 3 this morning. Revelation chapter 3, I want you to see this letter to the church in Sardis. It's a sweet sound to hear pages in the Bible flipping from left to right. We often have like sound machines for babies to put them to sleep, right? Like white noise and then a beach and then... For some reason, there's like jungle monkeys and stuff which I don't find relaxing. But I think they should do one, or some, one of you tech people should do one of just like pages of the Bible flipping to put you to sleep, right? Not that the Bible should put you to sleep. <laughs> Revelation chapter 3, I'm saying here that remembering the gospel is the key to reviving a dying church. Notice verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, right? The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you were dead. This is a church that grew to be identified on its own, based on its own reputation. This is a lot of churches today, by the way. Well, look at our reputation. We are reformed. We have the truth. We understand the true gospel, and you begin slowly to live off of a reputation instead of a vibrant, real relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Notice the solution. Remember then what you received and heard. Remember the old, old message. Remember the gospel. Keep it. That is, hold it fast. Isn't this a reminder of the parable of the sower? That fourth heart is 
converted, saved, transformed, because when they heard the word of God, they heard it and they kept it. They held it fast. They treasured it. That's what he's saying here. Remember what you received, remember what you heard, and keep it, guard it, treasure it. Don't depart from it. Don't shift away from it. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So the fact is that we need to remember the gospel. Now, this is more than just an intellectual reminder, right? Like a post-it on your wall every day. The gospel. No, friends, you need, to, you need to remember the implications of the gospel. Paul says, I delivered to you as a first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Those sins are your sins, your iniquities, your transgressions. Go a little bit deeper into the subcategory. These are your lusts. This is your adultery. This is your idolatry that he died for. This is your propensity to trust in lesser things and to treasure things of insignificant value. It is your sin that he died for, and it's your sin that he buried with, him, with himself. That's remembering the gospel. In Titus chapter 3, one of the greatest confessions of God's triumph in the gospel is prefaced by the words, remind them. Remind them that when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul says to Titus, remind them of these things, Titus. Remind them that... We have received such a glorious and great salvation, the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Spirit, justification by faith alone through the blood of Christ alone, and an eternal hope bound up in God's promise. This is why we come again and again and again back to the Lord's table on Sunday mornings, because we need to remember the gospel you remember in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Our God wants us to remember what he's done for us, so much so that he institutes and establishes a regular meal for us to come back to every week, or as often as we are able to do it, to remember what he's done for us. Because he knows our inclination to swerve from such good news, to swerve from grace and to go back to works. He knows our inclination to try to earn favor, Versus just delighting in free favor. And so he says, you need, I mean, he takes the initiative, right? He takes the bread. He says, take. He says, eat. He takes the wine. He says, drink of it. He says, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It's all his initiating grace. 
He wants us to remember the good news of the gospel. This is my blood of the covenant, the covenant where God declares, I will be their God, they will be my people. No longer shall they teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, No, Yahweh, for they will all know me, he says, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You see, he institutes a meal for us to come to on a regular basis so that we can remember the fact that he remembers our sins no more. Remember the gospel by which God says, I remember your sins no more. It's glorious. A failure to remember the gospel will kill your joy, it will kill your peace, it will kill your assurance, it will kill your hope, and eventually it will kill your witness. Number six, remember the end. Remember the end. If you would turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, remember the end. Verse 1 says, this is now... The second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, in both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, here's why you need to be reminded. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Peter would go on ultimately to, as we're going to see in a couple months, to remind them of the day of the Lord. This rich, glorious, prophetic theme that ran throughout the entire Old Testament, especially the minor prophets. But you see themes of it, even though it's not mentioned as the day of the Lord in Isaiah and in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. But it's the day when the Lord is revealed in all of his resplendent glory not in humiliation, coming as the suffering servant, but coming as a conquering king, the king of kings and lord of lords. He wants us to remember the day of the Lord. But prior to that, he says, know that there will, there, there will come scoffers. There will come mockers. And the whole reason they mock is because they want to continue living in their sinful lusts. That's why they mock. We're going to see this in Second Peter as we continue to make our way through it. But we need to remember the fact that, as Isaiah 65 says, God will create new heavens and a new earth. For the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that, in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. God says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. God's making all things new. We read about the day of the Lord also in Malachi chapter 4. Behold, the day is coming, says the Lord, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. In other words, total destruction. Not just the branch, but all the way down to the root. God will deal decisively once and for all with all evildoers and all arrogant. All the arrogant. He says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise 
with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. We are to remember the end. You see, that was the mistake of the Epicureans. That was the mistake of uh, the false teachers in Peter's day, is that they were saying all things are going to continue the way they were since the beginning of creation. There's not going to be any major interventions by a God into history. Peter says, no, beloved, you remember these things. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, catching everyone off guard. Paul says, when everyone's saying peace and security, then suddenly the Lord will come upon them. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, a cry of command, and with the voice of an archangel. And with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Why do we need to remember the end? Because the end is an encouragement to us. It's intended to be an encouragement to us. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you were also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So much emphasis in the scriptures are calling us to remember the end. The end is at hand. James said, the Lord is at hand, even at the door. Remember the end. Seven, I had no other category than to just call it what it is. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Turn with me to Luke chapter 17. Again, we're surveying the New Testament this morning and all those major places where there is a direct imperative to remember something or to be reminded of something. Luke 17. Let's begin in verse 22. The days are coming, Jesus says, when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now, these are the words of our Lord Jesus. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, 
They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. In other words, he's not emphasizing anything particularly sinful about the pre-flood generation or Lot's counterparts, I guess you could say, his, his people. He's just saying life is going on as normal. Buying, selling, trading, etc. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, he says, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Here we have one of the shortest verses in the Bible. Remember Lot's wife. So what's the context of that? Well, I think he goes on in verse 33 to explain that context. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. So that's what Jesus tells us. Remember Lot's wife. And if you remember the story, back in Genesis 19, God had come because the outcry of Sodom was great before him. The sin in Sodom, the homosexuality in Sodom, had grown so repulsive to God that he had determined to destroy it. And he sends two angels in. Before the destruction comes, the angels are sent to Lot. And we find Lot just kind of lingering there. No urgency to get himself out of that situation. As we looked at a couple, I guess about a month ago, morning comes and the angels are seizing Lot violently, saying it's time to go. Let's take whoever's going to go. Lot takes his wife, daughters, sons-in-law. And as they're on their way out, God had given, the angels had given clear instructions, destructions, depending on how you look at it, clear instructions to not look back. And then in verse 26, well, verse 23 says, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zohar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife, verse 26, behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. She became a monument, a statue of what it meant to turn back in love for the world and what it means to disobey the word, the command of Yahweh. Which is why the New Testament, so oftentimes we read, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. What was it that caused her to look back? Was it her love for the world? I mean, she had almost escaped. Spurgeon has a good sermon on this, by the way. And one of his points is the fact that she came so close to deliverance, and yet she was still destroyed. Like so many people in the Pilgrim's Progress, they're going to be at the gates of heaven and yet still be, still fall away. They came close, but they didn't persevere to the end. She didn't endure to the end. She turned back. Is there anything in your life, 
friend, that's causing you to look back to the world, the city of destruction, as Bunyan calls it. Is there anything in your life that's causing you to look back there with a lustful eye? Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Remember what love for the world will result in. Remember what disobedience to the living God will ultimately result in. We're to persevere to the end. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world is passing away, just like Sodom, just like Gomorrah, just like the pre-flood world. It's passing away. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. She fell by disobedience. It's interesting to think about and to meditate upon what she was attracted to or if it was just straight-up disobedience. Most people will not yield the need, will not bow the knee to Christ just because they refuse to obey anyone other than themselves. But we know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Peter says the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, done away with. And the conclusion in Peter's argument, he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Instead of looking back like Lot's wife, we're to look ahead to what lies ahead, right? We're to look forward to what lies ahead. What is it? A new heaven and a new earth where righteousness reigns, where righteousness dwells. And so remember Lot's wife She's an example of turning back, an example of not persevering to the end, an example of disobeying the voice of the Lord. As we come to the eighth and final point, every one of us needs to hear this at one point or another in our lives because of what we are, what we struggle with, our frailty. Indwelling sin, the temptation of the evil one, we need to hear this last one. When you fall, remember the place from which you have fallen. Remember the place from which you have fallen. Now, obviously, we're not talking about an occasional stumble or misspeaking here and there. We're talking about a massive fall. You, know, want to know, you want to know what a massive fall is in the eyes of the Lord Jesus in Revelation chapter 2? Turn there with me as we conclude here. Revelation chapter 2. It's losing the love that you had at first. Losing the love that you had at first. Revelation chapter 2, first letter to the first church here. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, 
The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. Some of your translations might say, I have this one thing against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned, forsaken, deserted the love that you had at first or in the beginning. Some people might look at this and say, well, it's the love that they had for one another. But ultimately, that is the result of losing, negating the love you have for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when you you are overflowing with love for him and walking in obedience to him, demonstrating your love for him, love for others is going to come naturally as a fruit of the Spirit in you, Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love. But he's saying you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember that new love when you were freshly converted, when you heard the gospel and you believed, when you were called out of darkness into his marvelous light, that love that welled up in your heart that God would save such a wretch as I, an unworthy one, not even worthy to be called the house, the, 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 the day worker as we saw in Luke 15, less than a household servant, not even be worthy to be called a servant. That love that overflowed, that he, a holy and good and just God, would choose you of all people to be in his kingdom, to be in his family, to be part of his court, his house. You've abandoned the love you had at first. And notice the solution here, verse five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Remember, repent, repeat. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent, unless there's a change in your thinking, a change in the way you are governed, a change in the way that you are operating internally with regard to who I am and regarding who you are. There needs to be repentance. But that repentance is motivated by where you fell from. Sweet fellowship with God. Remember the place from which you've fallen. Overflowing joy, knowing that your sins are forgiven. That God is not your enemy, but is your Father, reconciled completely to you. No enmity, no war, no strife, no quarreling. He has no quarrel with you. A place of contentment. That's the place from which we fall. When we are content in him, when we're content to lose everything else, if it means we have him. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, Asaph said, there's none that I desire besides you. My heart, my flesh may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's the place from which we fall. Place of fruitfulness. 
place of effectiveness, when gospel opportunities are opening up all around us and it just seems like the gospel's flowing from our lips and it's not forced, it's not awkward, it's not weird, it's just who we are because we're abiding in the sun, we're abiding in the vine. Remember the place from which you have fallen when you do fall and return. Now all of these eight realities of what we're to remember Remembering where we came from, remembering that we're not of the world, remembering that the world is watching us, remembering that we have persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, remembering the gospel, remembering the end, remembering Lot's wife, and those times we fall, remembering where we fell from. How do we keep these eight realities at the forefront of our minds? How do we remember them constantly? Well, there's an interesting observation in Psalm 119. The longest chapter in the Bible devoted to one's devotion to God's word. Seven times in Psalm 119, you find the phrase, I will not forget your word. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 61, Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. Verse 93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Verse 109, I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. Verse 141, I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Verse 153, look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. And number seven, the very last verse of this chapter devoted to the sweetness and blessedness and richness of God's word. Verse 176, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. You see, the psalmist understood that the source of being delivered of being preserved, of being kept in temptation, of being fruitful, of being sought out whenever he strayed, was the word of God. How are you to remember, dear believer, where you came from? You need to be reminded in the word of God where you came from. How are you to remember that you're not of the world by reading the word from another world? How are you to remember that the world is watching you by reminding yourself from Scripture that you are to maintain a testimony for the sake of the gospel. How are you to remember your persecuted brothers and sisters? Because when you go to Scripture, you find commands telling you to remember them. How are you to remember the gospel, the the glories of the gospel, the different aspects of the gospel? The Word of God reveals all of that to you. How are you to be reminded of the end? How are you to keep the, the inner fires, the coals, burning in your heart for the end by being reminded of the end again and again and again through the word of God? How are you to remember that you are to not turn back like Lot's wife? How are you to remind yourself that there's nothing back in Sodom, back in Gomorrah, there's nothing back in this world that we, that's worthy of our turning back? The word of God tells us that. Praying it, studying it, Memorizing it, reading it, rereading it, letting it dwell in us richly, as Paul says, 
in Colossians. Let's pray.